0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Now, Martin Scorsese's filmography needs little introduction. Let's just say six decades of magic. The Maestro's latest edition is Killers of the Flower Moon, a 206-minute adaptation of a David Graham book of the same name that examines a string of deaths in the indigenous Indian Osage community in 1920s Oklahoma. White settlers are keen to marry into and attempt to inherit the oil-rich Osage lands. And if waiting for them to die takes too long, well, you get the idea. The film stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart, an infantry cook returning from the First World War to his uncle's farm. That is William King Hale, the role taken by long-time Scorsese collaborator Robert De Niro. Here, Ernest and King plot to acquire a rich part of Osage land owned by a family of women. Ernest charms and marries Molly, played by Lily Gladstone. But does he love her or does he just, as he says, love money? Scorsese still sets standards for innovation and creativity in filmmaking while asking what made America what it is today. So, what do our critics make of Killers of the Flower Moon? Well, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by the film critic for The Telegraph, Tim Robey, and by the digital editor at Little White Lies magazine, Hannah Strong. But before we get into the programme, let's have a clip. What you'll now hear is Ernest and Molly's first meeting. Molly begins to figure out that there's a show me in her midst, otherwise known as a coyote.
1: They told me you was... He was going with Matt Williams for a time. You talk too much. Oh no, I don't talk too much. Just thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I
2: didn't realize this was a race. Oh. I don't care for watching horses.
1: Well, I'm a different kind of horse. <laughs>
2: Honkashi. Shomikasi. What was that? Shomikasi. That's how you are.
0: I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil.
2: Shit!
0: <laughs> <laughs> And with a wrinkle-eyed smile, Leonardo DiCaprio tries his magic on Lily Gladstone there as Molly in Killers of the Flower Moon. Hannah Strong, welcome to the programme.
1: Thank you for having me. Lovely
0: too. to have you here with Tim. Are we in the land of the great American epic here?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Scorsese's been dealing in that kind of territory for quite some time now. This is the first time he's... Tackled the kind of Native American side of American history. I was thinking a lot about this film in regards to one of his earlier works, Gangs of New York, in which there's this big kind of a fray between the Protestants and the Catholics of New York, obviously. And um, I learned recently that Daniel Day Lewis's character in that film um, is part of a gang called the nativists which are the kind of british protestants i want to say Mm. yes (laughs) it's bad that i get them mixed up constantly (laughs) isn't it like all that history didn't happen (laughs) that believe in kind of the the right of the british protestants to the american land Mm. and uh you know called nativists has absolutely nothing to do with native americans and obviously there's some great irony in um the whole conflict in that film is these all these white people fighting over New York City, when really it doesn't belong to any of them, The yeah. Native Americans. So this is obviously, what, 15 years later, quite a while later, that Scorsese's tackling one of the darkest chapters in American history that I think arguably is still kind of going on. There's still mm. a huge movement, or not as big as it could be, in America to uh, restore land to the Native Americans and to recognise formally The kind of atrocities that they had to deal with. Uh, This story is, you know, it takes place in one state, but really it's something that happened time and time again across America. There's countless instances of uh, systematic brutality inflicted upon Native Americans and it's great that Scorsese, even at his his grand age, is still using his enormous kind of power and talent to get these stories made. And in the case of Kills of the Farm, in mean, working so closely with the Osage people to make sure that they feel the story is told in the correct way. And I know that the people he consulted with did have a lot of input into the script and into making sure that they were being represented and not just kind of used as... Um, set dressing and that they actually were getting their point of view told in the story. So it's it's something new, even though He's it's, done you know, it's sort ethics, of the oldest you know. story
0: that you could tell about America in many ways. But yeah but, it, yeah, but it's... And Tim, maybe I can bring you in here. Hannah sort of brought up Gangs in New York. It's got that kind of foundational quality, hasn't it? It's got that, yeah, how the West was won and where it got us <laughs> kind of attitude to it and storyline to it. As well. I think
2: Scorsese's really good on, on history and he's mm. very thoughtful on American history. I love him also in this kind of languorous late career mode where he allows himself three and a half hours to tell a story very patiently. I adored The Irishman. It was my favourite of his films for probably 25 years. Uh, and this is right up there. Uh, and I think in regard to everything Hannah was just saying, what's particularly great is that he chose to tell the story this way and to go about it in this way. Because the book that this is derived from is a, a nonfiction book by David Gran, And about half of that book is really about the early days of the FBI. Mm. And that was originally Scorsese and, and Leonardo DiCaprio's thinking they were going to do... A story about the early days of the fbi and dicaprio was going to play the chief investigator who comes in and sort of solves the crimes which is quite white saviory mm-hmm. and would have been a very very different film and then as they were developing the project they kind of realized no, well, no. This is not the right. This is not this the, is story. The, the story. The yeah. story is about the oppression that, uh, that Hannah was just describing, and it's about how the sort of treachery and trickery of the the people involved, the culprits in this. Uh, so again, it becomes a kind of organized crime story, which yeah. is which is Scorsese's forte, but with huge roles and recognition given to the O'Sage characters as well.
0: Yeah, it's exactly that. There seems to be like the tectonic plates of the western. This is a cowboys and Indians story. But it's an insidious, it's not like gunfights at the OK Corral. It's an insidious thing, isn't it? This idea of intermarriage, as I said in the introduction, if waiting for these poor women to die off fairly naturally (laughs) takes too long, then this band of crooks led by William Hale, King Hale, because he sets himself up, I suppose, against the chief as well, doesn't he? I suppose, in a way, is what happens. Let's tackle the cast, because there are some well, for my money, stellar performances in this, Hannah. Where do you want to start, Hannah, with performances?
1: I'd like to start with Robert De Niro because I think, like Tim, I absolutely adored The Irishman. I thought it was fantastic and, yeah, probably my favourite of uh, Scorsese's kind of 21st century works. But in this film, I mean, I've not seen he's, De Niro. He's because, throughout this film. <laughs> yeah, I, he's so menacing in this film uh, in a way that I don't think I've seen him be for a very long time. There's this kind of charm and, and really quiet malevolence to him. And you get the store set out quite early from um, William Hale. He, he's very upfront with his plan for what they're going to do. He It's not just, you know, they um, Leonardo DiCaprio kind of comes to his uncle and, it takes years for them to figure out this plan. Straightway is like here's what you're gonna do, you're gonna seduce this Native American woman and we're gonna steal her money. Like it's so um it's almost cartoonish the way okay. it is described, you know, there is a kind of a Looney Tunes level of like insanity to what this man is, like is putting that. out there. Yeah. But then watching it unfold across these 3 hours, the, the kind of you can totally understand why the Native American community, the Osage people were taken in by this man who claims to be supporting them and uplifting speaks them, their language. He's speaks not just their language. Yeah, 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 he's he's subtle, he's,
0: he's, 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 he's fairly subtle. He's, he's not subtle with <laughs> Ernest, his nephew, <laughs> but he's subtle with them, isn't he? He he's seems totally, like a great champion yeah. of their cause.
1: He's totally infiltrated To their community and become part of it, and you know he goes to their funerals and their celebrations, and um, the insidiousness of the character um, is something that I think is just masterful from De Niro. You know, I think um, it's again I said you know it's amazing for Scorsese to be not content with resting on his laurels, but I think De Niro as well to be getting this kind of performance out of him at any point in his career would be amazing but um yeah to just yeah. think he's still got more in him still got these these layers to uh, to what he's capable of as an actor i think it's there's fantastic. a lot of him
0: in this movie it's a long movie there's a lot of him in it it's so subtle it, i don't want to spoil the ending at all but he stays in control of himself doesn't he it's a very controlled controlled malevolent charming sort of witchy performance I suppose isn't it from him
2: he's kind of like the puppet master and I feel like he's sort of hanging in the wings of every scene kind of Staking his control over it, but then managing to keep his hands clean—that's the key thing. You never see him actually get his hands dirty. He's just masterminding it all. Yeah. I will just the final thing I'd add on De Niro. I think it's maybe his most morally corrupt character ever, and he has played some shady (laughs) men. Even Max Cady in Cape Fear has some sense. Has a sense of like of personal grievance that he's kind of acting against. Mm -hmm. He's got some weird, twisted, warped sense of ideals being broken. This guy just wants all the money in is, has absolutely no scruples about how he's going to get it. But the teaming with DiCaprio is, is interesting because it's the first time that Scorsese yeah. has brought together these two muses from his the two to different halves of his career, if you like. First, Their first collaboration in a Scorsese film, but they're actually in a film from the 90s together, which is why, in fact, De Niro helped Leonardo DiCaprio get kind of noticed in the 90s because they were in this film called This Boy's Life in 1993. Mm-hmm and he was so impressed with him.
0: Is that the Tobias... um, Tobias Wolf um, Wolf memoir, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it's
2: really good underrated Mm -hmm. film, that. But they're back here together and playing uncle and nephew. And I think DiCaprio's role is really tricky for him to to pull off, and I feel as though he sinks into it gradually. I think at first there's way too much scowling for me. He does this very monotonous kind of down-mouth grimace in every scene. And I'm like, this is a weird performance, I'm not sure. But as it rolled along... And as you realise that the kind of centre of the film is his, in fact, his kind of weird devotion to his wife, despite everything that's going on, the performance starts to make more and more sense and he becomes really quite moving at the end, I think. It was a performance that very much had a trajectory to me, but in the right direction.
0: I love the ambivalence of the sort of actorly relationship between Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone as Ernest and Molly. You never quite know how devoted and how unscrupulous... Ernest being, I mean that that keeps you guessing pretty much to the end. Was I being naive, (laughs) Hannah?
1: I think that obviously, as the audience, you know, we kind of know what intentions Ernest has been sent in there with, but you know, you you do, I think, wonder how much of that is true and how much you know he kind of does fall in love with Molly because she is presented as this incredibly charming, incredibly uh, strong-willed and you know free-spirited woman who I think is kind of taken by surprise by Ernest's persistence. <laughs> and yeah. um, it it's all the more heartbreaking for not kind of really knowing if he only ever pretended to be in love with her to eventually play this this long game or if you know he did kind of um, actually develop some feeling towards her along the way. I do feel a little bit sorry for Lily Gladstone because I think in the second half of the movie... By circumstances of the plot, she does kind of um, get a bit of short shrift and, you know, she just kind of doesn't get to do very much. And there is a reason why, which I'm not going to kind of (laughs) go into too much for the listeners. But, um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of her, really. I think she's such a great actress and such an amazing showcase for her. And I do think it's uh, wonderful that Scorsese chose her for the role because she's been doing amazing work for years and it's nice to see her finally get a kind of good platform. But, yeah, I would have liked a little more just of kind of Molly herself. Molly is a separate entity from Ernest because they get together quite quickly in the story. And then, um, yeah, that's her.
0: A... Is there something I wondered about the unknowability of her slightly as a character? She speaks Osage language with her sisters and her family and her mother, doesn't she? And, and obviously, Ernest begins to speak it as well. But I wondered whether there was something about a little bit of her kind of poker face performance that was about the unknowability of of her as a person, as a character.
2: Yeah, and that's what kind of keeps you guessing through this relationship, I think, because she has this kind of stoical strength to her. But as you say, there is a strange kind of carapace to her of stillness Mm -hmm. that you're you're, you're not quite sure whether she's cottoning on to what's happening or not. That's that's kind of key. And I think the audience is meant to keep asking themselves, has she still not figured it out? And she's kind of going through some other stuff, as Hannah Hannah was hinting, that kind of remove her faculties slightly so she, so she can be hoodwinked more easily. Or oh, gaslit, need, um, may, I, may I add. But um, I do think that's an interesting... And it becomes quite... Because the film is really quite long... There's more and more of it happening, and you're kind of like, I, I, just can't believe that he's getting away with this, Ernest, because he's not a clever mastermind at all. He's a doltish, yeah. kind of um, stooge of a character who essentially is being completely manipulated by his uncle into doing all of this and is going along with it, which is not to let him off the hook. He's making terrible decisions all the all the way, but he's not really clever enough. To be, you know, in charge of this deception, really. So, thank God, his uncle is the one handling it. Um,
0: and I guess it's a pecking order of of every. There's hitmen, and there's hitmen that hitmen hire, and everyone's kind of one. If you if you're a senior member of the, of the Hale family, with William at the top of it, De Niro's character at the top of it, you're sort of always one remove, two removes, three removes from abject hands-on guilt i suppose aren't you um and this kind of goes I mean, it's important to know also that um as we said in the introduction that ernest burkhart leonardo dicaprio comes back from the war but he's a he's an infantry cook is there a lower is there a right. lower rank right so he is not he's not a, he's not been not brave but he's not been fighting on the
2: front scorsese says that he showed leonardo dicaprio william wyler's the heiress as a kind of reference mm. point which is based on the Henry James novel Washington Square and is about the very sort of treacherous gold digging plan of Montgomery Clift's character to 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 wed the rather plain and vulnerable uh, Olivia de Havilland character. And Leonardo DiCaprio Ke- in this film, to put it mildly, is not Montgomery Clift. You know, he's he's sort of a very, he's like a gremlin. I mean, he's got this, he's a very, he's never looked less attractive. But it's kind of interesting that he sort of thinks that's his role and that's what his uncle is telling him he has to do. Mm. So it, that's why it makes sense for him to have kind of looked back to that film, which famously ends with um, Montgomery hammering on the door because he's screwed up his plan, basically, which is, a, you know, something similar
0: happens here. And this is all part of this, this structure of deal making you said i mean it's got there's an interesting confluence of genres here if we have to get into genres but we are going to because i've set it up Let's do it. Uh, We've got the Western. There is the myth of American, you know, the founding of America about it. And it's also a gangster film as well, right? I mean, there is all sorts of things that Scorsese is so strong at. For me, anyway, I don't know about you, Hannah, but I found that I loved the sort of the confluence with all these kind of rivers of genre rivers collided.
1: Oh, yeah, no, massively. I'm not particularly into Westerns as a genre. It's just not something I've ever really Mm. had much interest in. I quite like the kind of revival of, like, Neo Westerns. I, I very much like Power of the Dog as well. A few years ago from Jane Campion. So um, With Jesse I'm,
0: brilliant Jesse Plemons again.
1: Again, yeah, he's just yeah. something about his face that says like old timey Westerns. So, so
0: as Tim says, so, so as Tim says, then presumably Jesse Plemons was to play the yeah. Ernest Burkhart and this is what, and the other way round. So when it was more about the FBI and less about the family.
1: My kind of hot take on this film is I would have maybe prepared to have seen that version I think so like, too. I, I
2: think because Jesse would have been better early on as Ernest yeah, and then Leonardo can come in as Columbo essentially which is what that the role is Columbo it's like let's figure out what you've been doing here shall we <laughs> I, <laughs> All think, right.
1: um, I mean there is a bit of that kind of detective story and that comes in quite late when Jesse Plemons character who is a kind of um forebearer to the f b i kind of comes in and starts investigating the murders um but it's it's actually quite a small part of the story and a lot of people I know that've read the book say that like actually there's a lot that the the film misses out in terms of how kind of prolific the the this criminal enterprise was to um i, I mean basically so dec- sort of deeper
0: rooted and more yes. pervasive and, yeah. yeah
1: basically to to rob and decimate the native American communities, especially the ones that had had Luck with the oil they had found on the um, reservations and their land. But one of the kind of most surprising elements for me is is the way that Scorsese brings like true crime into this and kind of this voyeuristic sensibility that I think has has really become quite pervasive and it's been around for a very long time since like Jack the Ripper people have been interested <laughs> in true crime, really? but never has there been as much true crime content as there is now? It's a very small thing, and it comes quite late in the story. But he kind of turns, you know, turns it back a sort on us—a framing
0: device at the end, yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah, turns it back on us, and I think he's kind of um, highlighting that we're all complicit in reading these books and watching these films and thinking well that's a terrible thing that happened and just not kind of realising how those roots like haven't stopped growing you know, I think there's something very masterful he does which is kind of maybe getting lost in all the other things about that are so brilliant about the movie, which is, you know, he's asking us to uh, recognise the extent to which this is still an issue in American society, in every society that has uh, faced a kind of colonial um, oppressor. I think, you know, it's such a smart film in that regard in using these kind of genre trappings to actually make us realise we're kind of complicit as the viewer.
0: Yeah, I thought that was wonderful. Suddenly we realise that we're not just watching a story that we don't we close the book but the story still carries on right I thought that was masterful at the end actually with Marty himself
2: yes and we can probably say that it's a kind of radio production of the the story that we've just seen uh, as it would have been told in the 50s 60s on stage with kind of lurid uh, entertainment value at its kind of uh, forefront and just kind of just something very creepy about it with all white people on stage reenacting this stuff
0: and like mm. right, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's kind of made this sort of incredible story that you just watched three and a half hours or turns it into a sort of penny dreadful, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Kind of Which Netflix boiler. still do with all the serial killers. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. 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 Nice. And oh, Jack White is a as a radio announcer. Did you see him? There's loads of sort <laughs> of country rock musicians in this film. Jason Isbell plays the sort of half-brother who's married to one of the other Osage uh, women. And uh, there's a random collection of sort of country rock stars in it. Um, we love Killers of the Flat Moon. I've, I've decided, don't we? Oh, yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. Do yeah. we even need... To, I mean, I, I said it was 206 minutes. I mean, that flies by. Let's not it even does. have the discussion. It does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, I
2: would say it's not without its minor flaws, uh, so, mm. which slightly puts it one notch down from the Irishman in my book, but I still think it's magnificent. And just, if people watch it, just keep your phone in the other room. Well, say.
0: Hannah and Tim, thank you very much for your wit and wisdom and depth of knowledge on Killers of the Flower Moon. Now we're turning to what it made you think of, what DVD did it make you pick off the shelf? And for you, Hannah, where are we going?
1: I've gone with Jennifer Kent's film The Nightingale, which is set in post-colonial Australia and it follows this journey, shall we say, that this uh, young Irish immigrant goes on after she is attacked in her home by a British soldier um, her child is killed and she's quite violently sexually assaulted and she ends up um, teaming up with this aboriginal Man to kind of track him down. She enlists him to help her find this guy so she can get revenge on him. And Jennifer Kent is, I think, a really like fascinating filmmaker. Mm. Her first film, The Babadook, is the one that kind of everyone's seen, and it was really the film that everyone was started that kind. Of, it's about grief. It's about trauma. You know, kind of like elevated it's not horror. Just scary. Thing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I like The Babadook, but I think The Nightingale is absolutely fantastic, and it touches on, I think, a similar kind of territory to Kills of the Flower Moon. Albeit in a you know different continent, different country, and I particularly the thing I really appreciate and the thing that I think makes it most relevant is this very stark portrayal of the kind of extent of colonial violence against women, against minorities, and the kind of self defeating aspects of revenge. You know, this this woman goes off on this mission. I'm gonna I'm gonna Kill this British man who you know has has done such horrible things to me, and going through this journey with this Aboriginal tracker, Billy, who is a real character, um, shall we say, <laughs> she comes to realise her own kind of privilege as a a white woman living in Australia and um, she's Irish as well
0: so there's a sort of pecking order of how white you are exactly yeah Yeah. so she's
1: below the English but obviously still has a lot more privilege than the Aboriginal people and throughout her journey she's meeting more of the Aboriginal community and seeing kind of the horrific things that have been done to them and their land and I mean it's absolutely brutal film I know a lot of people who couldn't finish it because it is so shocking. But, um, I mean, in a way, you think it's like it should be because there's nothing on screen that didn't happen in real life, even if the story itself is fictional. And, yeah, I just think it's um, a really excellent and harrowing kind of companion piece, almost kind of from the opposite perspective, from the female perspective of someone who's, you know, kind of been oppressed and is trying to um work through that
0: and that, and a similar sort of territory in terms of to use the word wrongly, the discovery of a nation,
1: yeah, and the yeah.
0: colonizing thereof I and suppose, the right?
1: chapters of history that yeah, most yeah. filmmakers would rather kind of just ignore, and most politicians and most people would rather just pretend it's not happening, yeah. so yeah, kudos to Jennifer Kent for kind of bringing that to the forefront as well.
0: Beautifully put, thanks Hannah. That is The Nightingale by Jennifer Kent. Tim, this is a lovely choice. <laughs> tell us what you're tell us what you're gonna be telling us about the next um, one.
2: I briefly alluded to gaslighting vis a vis the plot of Killers of the Flower Moon. He's, de-
0: he's, led a, he's led quite integral Hansel to the and story. Oh, there we go. I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I've sown some seeds. So
2: I thought we'd go back to explain where that term comes from, a much used term these days and somewhat abused as well. So um, what do we
0: understand it as? We understand it as... Well, the, I reckon it
2: probably means being made to think by your partner that you're going a bit nuts and you're the problem you're the needy one you're a nightmare and everything your partner doing is is, is out of love for you um, and you, you need to shape up instead of them I reckon that's probably loosely what people use it to mean right yeah. so I mean and that that does come back to what I'm going to talk about which is the the play that it's that it came from which is a Patrick Hamilton play from 1938 which was turned into two films quite soon afterwards a very very popular play
0: 20,000 Streets Under the Sky Patrick the Hamilton same, the same writer
2: yeah. and uh, Hangover Square Hangover he also Square. Yeah. so the play is set in fogbound London in the mid-Victorian era.
0: He loves a boarding house. He certainly He loves does, a gloomy yeah. London, yeah.
2: And it's literally about a psychotic husband trying to make his wife go mad because he wants to inherit her fortune, essentially. And he uses various devices to do this, including t- switching on and off the gas lights in her house and having footsteps rumbling above her head and all of these things so that she gradually does in fact start going insane it was spun off as it's a I say. posh
0: version of the twits uh, <laughs> yeah <I> like that <laughs> yeah
2: it's, it's, it's a really good play which sometimes gets revived there was a production with Rosamund Pike a few years ago at the Old Vic but the two films are very famous brilliant brilliant british version of it in 1940 by thorold dickinson who's a favorite of martin scorsese's so funnily enough everything comes full circle martin scorsese makes his own gaslight film but he loves this film and it is wonderful it's so well cast with anton walbrook as the culprit and diana wynyard as the uh, the victim of his his scheme uh, which did, A film that did very well. And then Louis B. Mayer decided, right, we've got to have the Glossy American remake of this. So he hired George Cukor to make that in 1944 with Ingrid Bergman, which she won her first Oscar for, Best Actress. A very Hitchcockian take on it. A little bit too long, but quite suspenseful and quite clever. The famous thing about the remake is that Louis B. Mayer wanted it to be the version. So he tried to have every single print of the original British version incinerated in the vaults. Because M- <laughs> MGM had bought it up.
1: He literally- he tried to gaslight everyone. He literally
2: tried to gaslight everyone into thinking that <laughs> that his version of gaslight was the only correct oh version of gaslight. <laughs> luckily, presumably someone disobeyed or at least held back a print, possibly in the UK. So so luckily, the original British version does exist, and I do think it is in fact better. It's more economical. It's scarier. It's kind of creepier. Um, but that's. That's a long distance kind of origin story for the term that I think has only been recently popularized. I would say probably in the last 10, 15 years it started to be used. I was sort of
0: amazed. More. Yeah, I think I, re- I, I was listening to a podcast about this, about the, about the play or the novel that became the play that became the, the film. And I had no idea that the term originated from the 19. 19- well, particularly the like late '30s. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And
2: so you know, it, gaslighting is a thing; it's been going on all this time, but it's only just been given this name again, if you like. Yeah. Uh, which I kind of find fascinating. But and the gaslighting, just to bring it back, to killers of the Flower Moon, that's yeah. going on in this in this story, uh, is not as I as I mentioned earlier, it's not the result of a kind of clever psychopathic husband mastermind being very cunning he's not, he's, of not cunning. In the walking state. he's not he's <laughs> not cunning he's actually just he's deeply deluded and uh, doesn't know you know what in his own life is has value he's a deeply tragic character and i do find leonardo's realization of that as the story goes on really quite powerful just as as of course um, molly's own plight is deeply upsetting as well
0: Oh, it's beautiful, beautifully put. We could have talked for yonks and yonks and yonks. Thank you both so much um, for your brilliant extra choices as well. The Nightingale by Jennifer Kent and both versions of Gaslight. Find the British one if you can, Sir Tim Roby. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Hannah Strong and Tim Roby. Killers of the Flower Moon is, of course, out in cinemas now. And Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds...